Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your Ophthalmos Yo Caps and Board of View podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and if you didn't catch us last week, this week we're doing the second part in our Open Globe series, now focusing on intraoperative surgical tips and pearls. Again, our guest is Dr. Grayson Armstrong, who did his chief residency at Mass Eye and Ear, where he ran the trauma service and did most of the globes of Northern New England. Now, let's get back, right back into things. So, where we last left off, we talked about diagnosis. So let's say, Grayson, that I've diagnosed a ruptured globe and know they need surgery. So after I'm done panicking about this, what do I think about next? Yep. After you've uh, put your jaw back in your head and kind of uh-huh. collect yourself, the first thing to think about, and we mentioned it last time, but it's so important, it's worth repeating, is to set the expectations with the patient. Use those prognostic scores when you're outside the room. Try to figure out what their ultimate vision is going to be. And then walk in there and tell it like it is. You know, this is day one of a long process where that patient's going to need potentially more surgeries. Their vision's probably going to not improve that much, and it may actually be worse after the first surgery. A long period of healing, a lot of eye appointments. You have to kind of set the expectations up front so that you build that trust with them. You're not too hopeful in giving them hope of 2020, but you're also not being dire and giving them zero hope at all. So that's the first thing. And then you want to really get a sense of when that injury happened, the timing of it, so that you can get them to the OR within 24 hours of the injury so that you can decrease the risk of endophthalmitis and give them the best chance of vision recovery. You're going to want to protect that eye. And if they don't already have a Fox shield on, you tape that thing on there yourself. You pump them full of Zofran so they don't vomit and expulse intraocular contents. And then you start them on antibiotics. At Mass Eye I mentioned we use IV antibiotics for 48 hours. We use vancomycin and ceftazidime but you should use whatever you have at your institution, either oral, topical, or all of the above to try to prophylax against anything. And then you get them ready for the OR. Great. So now that we're getting into the OR, like right before we you know, actually start the surgery, what are some of the considerations that you have for the preoperative care? Well, you know, you need to get a good history, clinical and ocular history from them, because you need to know if they have anything in their medical history that's going to prevent them from getting general anesthesia or make it less safe, right? especially elderly patients, but I've seen some weird stuff come up. So definitely get a good medical history. Talk to the anesthesiologist ahead of time. Generally, we use general anesthesia for everybody. You know, even if it's a small, simple zone one laceration, you're going to want to get them under general anesthesia to take the time you need, especially these are all teaching cases for us. So you want to have the resident free to talk and without the patient listening in on what's going on. But one thing to know, (laughs) do not use a retrobulbar block prior to surgery, that's just a big no-no. It may seem obvious to some, but you don't want to give posterior pressure, which can expulse intraocular contents from the eye, because that can make the uvea come out if it wasn't already. <laughs> so don't do that. That must be a horrifying sight if that were Big to no-no. I'm sure it would be. Other things to think about. So, you know, you've got them and you're getting ready for surgery. You obviously drape sterilely, just like you would any case. You wipe the 10% povidone on the skin. You put the 5% povidone inside of the eye. Um, just to clean it, get rid of any of the bugs that are around. And then one interesting thing that we also do is use these special lid speculums. It's not that they're like hard to find, but they're called Jaffe speculums, and we don't tend to use them in any other ophthalmic surgery. We're used to the ones that kind of, you know, spread, kind of like if you were holding their eyes open like fingers. But these Jaffe speculums are actually held onto the eye with clamps and rubber bands. And what it does is it hooks to the eyelids and actually lifts up and out, instead of pushing down and back on the eye. So it doesn't provide any posterior pressure. It doesn't cause anything to expulse from the eye. and does a really good job of giving good exposure. 
And just for residents who may not have heard of it, spelled J-A-F-F-E, so you know how, uh, how to ask for them. Okay, cool. So, you know, we've prepped the patient and, and draped them, and they're under anesthesia. Can you remind us, we talked about this last episode, but remind us of the anatomy for the most common sites of rupture. Mm-hmm. So if you have a blunt rupture of the eye, the most likely scenario is that it's either going to happen right behind where the muscle, extracular muscles insert. So those are the areas of the sclera that are thinnest, right behind the medial, inferior, lateral, and superior rectus. And as we mentioned, if you're doing strabismus surgery, you'll notice that those areas are thinner than the rest of the sclera. Or it will happen to rupture right at the limbus. And so that's where the cornea meets the sclera. For some reason, that area tends to be a little bit weaker. So those are the two sites to look for. And then because I tend to make sure that residents know this before we go in the OR, always just freshen up on the spiral of Talot. This eye is going to be a mess. It's going to be a bloody, you know, disorganized eyeball. And so you're going to need to know where these muscles insert just for your own edification so you don't accidentally cut them off the eye when you're exploring. So the medial rectus inserts 5.5 millimeters back. Inferior rectus is 6.5 millimeters back. Lateral rectus is 6.9 millimeters back. And the superior rectus is 7.7 millimeters back. And lastly, just remember the inferior oblique inserts over the macula, so just don't go dissecting that off of the macula. <laughs> Nobody will want <laughs> Yeah, no, no one is happy in that case. Grayson, can you remind us, if you're the surgical resident, you're trying to prepare equipment for the surgery, what kind of sutures are you using and thinking about when you're repairing globes? Great question. So this is something where the resident should really grab all the possible sutures that you may need. And so I just have everybody get everything that they could possibly need. So... If you're planning on a scleral wound repair, you tend to use 8 nylon. It's pretty robust, pretty sturdy. It can hold the sclera, never comes out, so it's going to stay there their whole life. At the limbus, you use 9 nylon. On the cornea, you use 10 nylon. On the conjunctiva, if you're doing a pyridomy, you're going to close that with 8 vicral suture. If you feel like you're going to need to isolate the muscles and kind of hook them, sometimes you can use 2 silk on a reel and put that silk without a needle on it, kind of around the muscle and tie it so that you can keep tabs on where that is. Or let's say the eyelid is lacerated and the Jaffe speculum isn't working really well. It's just not able to hold things back because it's too macerated. You can actually use a 4-0 silk on a reverse cutting needle and kind of imbricate that eyelid tissue and use that 4-0 silk to, to pin back that eyelid tissue before you repair it at the end of the case. Very cool. Very cool. I haven't had to do that, but that's a good trick to have up your sleeve. You can. This might be obvious, but can I ask, you brought this up last episode, if someone has a an open globe and a lid lack, which do you repair first? It seems like you just answered it, but... Yep. Or does it so, depend on the case? No, I've always done the eyelid laceration last. Get everything else taken care of. The globe repair is going to take you know upwards of a couple hours, and so you want to get that done. And then you can practice your marginal lid laceration repair after that. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess I would help you avoid worrying about putting pressure on the globe while you're repairing the lid too, I guess. Right. Okay. Yeah. So imagine you, you repair the lid and then you put the Jaffe speculum in and you put too much tension on it. Those little sutures pop. <laughs> like, you're going to be so sad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Redo. Yeah, you want you want happy attendings and surgical residents. Yeah. Um, okay, so for the kind of last part of this episode, Grayson's prepared two cases. So for HIPAA purposes, the key demographics and you know parts of the history may be changed just to, to keep these for medical education purposes only. So uh, Grayson, do you want to take us through um, the first case? Yeah. So let's imagine you're sitting in the ED, minding your own business, nice little Saturday afternoon, 
been pretty quiet, then beep, 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 your pager goes off. You get a consult about a potential ruptured globe. And so you walk over, you're a little nervous about what's about to come, but you walk in the room and there's a 62-year-old female sitting there who is hiking and a branch of a tree branch or something hit her in the eye. Um, she, she noticed pain and so she came into the emergency room. Notably, she didn't lose consciousness or anything else, so just a, a focal eye injury it seems. You do your exam and you get the vision at count fingers only in that eye. The pupil doesn't have an RAPD, so that's good. And you defer the IOP because when you look on slit lamp, you notice that there's a thorn stuck in the cornea and it's in the anterior chamber. So there's no question about whether it's an open globe or not. Ah. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> what do you do? So, you know, I think in these kind of cases, it's important to know that, that you're going to take that thorn out, obviously. It's organic plant matter. So keep that in the back of your mind too. But if you're repairing the eye, you want to visualize the wound first. That's always the first and most important thing. Now, if this is a corneal wound, it's easy to visualize the wound. But if you visualize the wound and then the eye deflates when you pull that thorn out, then you can get into big trouble, right? You can have like a choroidal hemorrhage or the IOP could go to zero and other things can happen. The iris can flop forward. You can have other damage from the thorn. So you really want to make sure that the eye maintains its structure while you're visualizing what's happening. So, you know, prep them and drape them, get them into the OR, put your Jaffe speculum in, put them under general anesthesia. And then the first things first is make a paracentesis. Now this seems like the most obvious, easiest thing to do, but it's actually in a globe not that easy because it, eyes can be really hypotenuse and really deformed. And making a paracentesis is a lot harder than you think it is. It's not like a cataract where the eye's pressure is something like, you know, 20, 25. This pressure could be like two. So what I do is I take a Calibri forceps and I grab the episclera right next to the limbus where I'm going to make the wound. And I take my paracentesis blade and I go right over the Calibri and I stab right next to the limbus to make the wound. Now, if you have a flat AC, you don't want to dive all the way in because you're going to puncture and lacerate the iris or even the lens. And in that case, you want the tip to just go barely through and you slice sideways. If it's nice and deep, then you can go all the way in. But you also want to make sure that the, the angle is steeper than you would think. So you're pointing back towards the optic nerve instead of kind of flat like in a cataract surgery. Um, that's because if it's hypotenuse, the track is going to end up longer than you think it is. And if it's a really long paracentesis and you're trying to manipulate a second instrument through that wound, it's not going to move very much if the wound is really long. So you want to make it really steep and really aimed posteriorly. So those are the tips I'd use for that, wow. things that may not be obvious. Then you want to use viscoelastic in the AC to maintain the eye prior to manipulating that thorn. And so we use Helon or Helon 5 or Helon GV. It doesn't really matter because Helon has these really long chains and you're gonna, it's going to maintain the structure of the eye better than other viscoelastic material. So fill it with whatever you have on hand, whether it's Helon or otherwise. Notably, if you want to, you can try to use air, although air can also escape from a wound. But you could try to inflate the anterior chamber with air if you think it's a small wound and it would stay. Then just, you know, bravely go in and remove the intracorneal foreign body. There's two ways of doing this. If the thorn is still sticking out of the cornea externally, you can grab it with your Calibri forceps and pull it out. But in this case, and this is a true case, it was flush with the cornea. And if we went and tried to pull that thing out from the outside, you're going to have to muck around the corneal epithelium and stroma to get down to it. So what we actually did was we used some intraocular forceps, grabbed the tip of the thorn and pulled it through and through into the anterior chamber and then out the paracentesis. And so we just oh. kept it going along its track and pulled it out of the eye. So that's kind of the removal piece. Can I ask what intraocular forceps you used? Were they like 
like retina forceps or MST forceps? We, we tried two different forceps. We tried the MST forceps, which are quite robust, but they're quite large. And to get through a paracentesis, you would have to expand it significantly. So right. we actually did expand it, but the MST forceps ended up being the, the one of choice because first we tried Grease Haber 23 gauge retina forceps. And those are able to get through a paracentesis. They're quite thin and maneuverable, but the grip right. is not, not quite as strong. They're a lot smaller. And so it just yeah. wasn't enough to grip the thorn. Yeah. Retina instruments are pretty, pretty pathetic uh, in general. So, but you know, they, they are small, so they're, they're worth trying to begin with. And if you haven't heard of these instruments, you know, you can generally, if you ask for like retina forceps, they'll be able to get you those, the, the grease hopper. And MST stands for Microsurgical Technologies. It's like the company that makes these reusable intraocular forceps, if you haven't heard of them before. Okay, so you pulled this foreign body out in this daring rescue mission from the inside then out. But now you still have a hole in the cornea, right? What did Mm -hmm. you do then? Did you just suture it? Yeah, so we thought about the options at that point. Well, we we considered, do we do anything? Maybe because it's a puncture wound, it's going to be so small that it will self-seal. And so what we did at that point was we removed the helon from the eye by burping it out with BSS. And then the, the fluid unfortunately leaked out of that wound. So we had to do something. Um, we thought about suturing it, although the hole was right in the middle and that can leave a scar. Mm. So we tried to avoid it. And we thought about using cyanoacrylate or, you know, essentially superglue, sterile superglue for the eye, which is always an option too. And so in order, this is what we did. Would it be self-sealing? The answer is no. So we can't just leave it alone. So then what we did was we used a 10 nylon suture. The 10 nylon suture is non-inflammatory. It doesn't degrade. It's really sturdy, and it's also easy to remove. So we, we passed a single 10 nylon suture through that wound, and we tied it using a slip knot. So a slip knot is what we use in all corneal wounds for open globes. And it's worth just mentioning here the technique because it's unique. You can Google this online. There's not a lot of, ton- of videos of this online, and so you kind of have to hunt for it. But it's essentially a 1-1-1 one, one, one knot instead of a surgeon's knot, which, either, which is either a 2-1-1 or a 3-1-1. And the special piece about this is that you, you throw the first throw, and then instead of going in the valley of the two suture materials and passing backwards, you actually go on the outside of the long piece and throw it in the same direction as the first throw, hmm. go backwards, grab the small piece, and lay the suture down exactly where it was. This is going to make them both in the same direction, and it will slip, and you can either tighten it, loosen it, and ma- uh, adjust it throughout the entire case until you're ready to tie it down. And then the final throw, the third throw, is what locks it into place. And so you want this to be 90% depth. You don't want it to be 100%. If you go too deep in full thickness, that's going to leave us a track where the bacteria can follow the suture into the eye afterwards and cause endophthalmitis or cause leaking. If it's too shallow, then you, you can close the anterior portion, the epithelium, but the posterior portion may just flay open. And so mm. you want to make sure that the posterior portion is also closed with a good, nice 90% depth. So we tied that, we did our slip knot, we tie it down, and everything looked nice and hunky-dory. But let's hypothetically say that it kept leaking, and we're like, crap. We, we, we tried our best. We have tried to avoid using this super glue. Well, that's a really good option. And so if we tried to use super glue in a case like this, it's worth noting that it's a really fast and easy way of just trying to keep things closed and sealed. And so what we do is we use a 3-millimeter derm punch to make a small little hole of plastic, like a small little button. We can use either a drape for the face or a drape for the the eye or whatever. Cut out a sterile piece of plastic. Use a a cotton tip applicator with a small amount of ointment on it, like erythromycin, 
and use that to pick up the piece of plastic button. On the wooden part of the Q-tip? On the wooden part of the Q-tip. Okay, yep. gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of just picks it up nice and easily. You take the cyanoacrylate and put it on the plastic button while it's sitting there in front of you. And you dab it right where you want it on the corneal surface. And that plastic button will stay along with the cyanoacrylate. And that provides like a nice structural support. Now, residents may be familiar with this technique because you may do this if you have like an impending perforated cornea or a perforated cornea uh, coming in from an infection, but it's a very similar technique. If you really want to be next level about this, you can fill the anterior chamber with air because the air will make sure that no water is leaking out of the cornea while you have that button placed on there. And then you use a bandaged contact lens afterwards to make sure that it's nice and comfortable for the patient afterwards. Now, one thing I learned as chief that I did not know before is that one of the breakdown products of cyanoacrylate is actually formaldehyde. And if you leave this on the eye for too long, especially if it's going to seep into the eye, it can cause a lot of toxicity to things like the iris, the retina, and the intraocular uvea. So you really want to get that thing off of there. It usually falls off on its own in about two weeks. But if it's not falling off on its own, you might want to take that off at the slit lamp with topical preparacaine. So you'd take it off when you're confident the uh, cornea has sealed? And like, how do you know? Or how would one know if it's sealed? You may not know, but you don't want to risk a long-term issue. So at about two weeks, it usually falls off. And you can check that by just moving the contact lens with the patient at the slit lamp. And if you see that thing moving around, then it's already detached. If at two weeks it's not detached, you might want to just consider you know, putting preparacaine on the eye and using forceps to peel it off. If it's if it's still leaking, then you might really want to consider resuturing after two weeks or gluing again. But it shouldn't really be leaking that that much after two weeks. So the, I mean, that's awesome. You got it sealed with that uh, slip dot suture technique. So what did you do at the end to help prevent infection? So what we did was we injected intraocular moxifloxacin into the eye. At the end of the case, we do that for all of the cases where we can manipulate safely the anterior chamber. In cases where there's not a big hyphema, where the iris isn't right up against the eye, there's not just a total disorganized globe. Um, As long as it's safe, you put moxifloxacin in the anterior chamber. We do a subconjunctival injection of antibiotics and steroid underneath the conge. And so we do cefazolin, 100 milligrams per 0.5 milliliters, and then dexamethasone, 400 micrograms per 0.1 milliliter, kind of mixed up in one injection, and you do that away from the site of the wound, if it does have a scleral component, but in this case, it wouldn't matter where you put it. Postoperatively, we use moxifloxacin and eye drops as well. So we also do topical moxifloxacin drops for seven days afterwards. We use Predforte every two hours while they're awake. Uh, atropine to keep the iris nice and dilated while the intraocular inflammation goes down so you don't get kind of posterior synechiae form. And then we finish our 48 hours of IV antibiotics by having them stay inpatient it's nice that way because then you get to guarantee that you see them post-op day one in the hospital. They mm-hmm. can not come back. <laughs> so we at least know that things look all negative and things look healthy. So that's a nice way of keeping things on a close wrap on it. But that's kind of our prevention strategy. Um, and, you know, again, we, we've talked about this a couple of times now. Every institution will have their own practice patterns. You know, we would do, where I did residency, in the ED, they would get one dose of IV antibiotics and then... We would send them home on oral, but you know, everywhere, uh, you know, do it how uh, whatever resources you have available. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I actually had one case that was sort of similar to this, except um, in our case, it was obviously intraocular foreign body 
had violated the lens capsule. Like it went deep enough that it that it caused a lens capsule a violation. And even by the time that I had seen them a couple hours after, it was clear they were getting a traumatic cataract. So what are the considerations there? Does that change anything in terms of your intraoperative management? It can. So there's some controversy in terms of whether to take the cataract right away or not. The way I think about this is that if you have a lens capsular violation that's so bad that by the time you get to the OR, the lens material is fluffing up into the anterior chamber, you essentially don't have a choice but to take that cataract as long as it feels safe to do so. Now, it's notable that the cornea is going to be nice and steamy. It's going to be a little hazy. And the longer the case goes on, it may become a really bad view. But as long as it feels like it's even possible, if the lens material starts to fluff up into the eye, I would take that cataract right away. And I would use, I would not use a phaco machine necessarily. I would use the anterior vitrectomy. And just because you don't know if it penetrated all the way to the back of the bag, right? And so use the anterior vitrectomy setup on the phaco machine if you feel comfortable using it, if you need to brush up on it ahead of time. But you want to use the phaco and then use IA cut and cut IA intermittently to try to make it as safe as possible to remove all the cortex, all the lens material, and leave that bag in there. Now, it's sometimes possible to uh, make a rexus if you have good visualization. If not, and it seems like it's already kind of spread posteriorly, you can use curved grease hopper retina scissors and cut using extra paracentesis to cut like a circular rexus. And wow try to make a you know a sturdy little platform for you there. And let's talk about what happens if you don't do that. The reason why this is so important is because if you already have lens material fluffing up into the anterior chamber, which is especially common in young people because it's so gooey and gummy little cataracts, you get lens particle glaucoma where you get blocking of the trabecular meshwork with the lens particles. You get an IOP spike of 60. The cornea becomes hazy. You can't see anything but you are going to have to do something. They're going to come back like two or three days later in this crisis mode. You're not going to be able to have any better visualization than you would have had the first day. And now you're in like a hot steamy eye trying to take out all of these lens materials without a good view. It seems dangerous to me. And I, we just don't want to get into that, that point. The other thing to know is that let's say hypothetically you get a week out and it seemed relatively stable. You still run the risk of phacoantigenic glaucoma where you get an mm. inflammatory response to the lens antigens where you get KP, IOP, IOP elevation, inflammation, and that's hard to control. And you're going to take them again to the OR and take that out. The, the piece of this that's interesting is like, let's say it's a very small nick in the capsule and you're not quite sure if it's going to fluff up or not. You can try to leave it and take it like a week later to uh, get the cataract out if you think it's going to be safe. But if it's going to fluff up into the anterior chamber, I would take it right away for sure. So... You know, the natural next thing I think after I removed a lens is what do you do about putting an intraocular lens in? I mean, I imagine you typically don't have lens calcs on these patients. <laughs> Even if you try to get lens calcs, they're probably not very good because the eye is going to be hypotenuse or the cornea is not going to be its nice smooth curvature. So we don't put a lens in the eye for at least two or three months. Afterwards, we leave them aphakic. And there's a few reasons for that. You know, we, in the study that I mentioned where we had a rate of endophthalmitis of 0.9%, some of those patients were people where they had a lens placed. And that lens can serve as a nidus of infection where bacteria can glom mm. on, and then you have this persistent inflammation and infection afterwards. So it's really not worth the risk of putting a lens in primarily. So we leave them aphakic. That lets us kind of let the eye heal. You're able to get lens calculations after the fact, after the cornea is 
you know, in a healthier state, the eye is in a nice pressurized state, and you know, you may not even need it, right? Like there's a chance that they can use a rigid contact lens and get good vision and may not ever need a secondary lens, at least not in the near future. I've had, you know, even young kids do very well with contact lenses afterwards and we're waiting until they're old enough and their eye stops growing enough that they have stable lens biometry and then they can get their secondary lens like maybe 10 years from now. But if you want to put a primary lens in, just be very careful. Uh, it can be very difficult to get lens calculations and the risk of infection is real. So just use your own judgment. Okay. I learned a ton about how to manage a corneal open globe. Now, I think you have another case prepared for us. Is that right, Grayson? I do. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. That was a nice, clean, well-visualized corneal laceration. But now I've got a, a big, juicy scleral rupture with subconjheme. So these are the ones that you look at and really cause a pit in your stomach sometimes when a patient walks in. At least it did for me. So... This is also a true story. We changed some of the details of the case, but this is an 81-year-old gentleman with a, a history of bipolar who was standing up in the middle of the night, went to go to the bathroom, but he felt dizzy when he stood up, passed out, and struck his face on a bedside table. So, you know, he otherwise, other than just like passing out briefly, uh, his workup for his cardiac and neurologic workup was negative afterwards. So then we see him after neuro did their whole evaluation and they're like, yeah, we think he might have a, an open globe. So we come in, um, we look at his eye and he's got a, a vision of light perception only. His IOP was not checked. He has 360 bullous subconteme and a total hyphema. We think we can see like a superior rupture site near the limbus and there might be uvea there underneath the conjunctiva. So that's what we have in front of us. Oh boy. So now what? What do, you, what do we do? What do you do? <laughs> well, first you pray to the surgical gods, and then you call anesthesia and book an OR time. But uh, surgically, other than prepping and draping, everything that we said before tends to be true at the outset. You want to visualize the wound while maintaining the structure of the eye as much as possible. If you have a scleral wound, it's really hard sometimes to visualize the entirety of what's going on, right? There's going to be a lot of blood. There's going to be a lot of muck and clot around, maybe even uvea in your way. I've even seen things like the intraocular lens or the natural crystalline lens expulse from the eye and kind of block the wound. So you really have to be careful when you're dissecting. Uh, remember the spiral to low, don't, don't dissect off the scleral muscle, uh, the uh, extraocular muscles <laughs> when you're exploring for this. But first again, just visualize the wound. To do that, you want to start by making a pyridomy and you can do a 360 pyridomy if you think it's of in the patient's best interest and you want to start at the limbus and make some relaxing incisions and then kind of go around all the way 360. So you want to blunt dissect with blunt Westcott's and curved Stevens scissors into the four quadrants and make sure that you don't see anything. And you want to, once you find it, you want to remove the tenons and all the scar. Um, it's actually, if you don't do this, very easy to accidentally suture the tenons to tenons instead of sclera to sclera. And so you really want to get down to bare sclera and see the wound in all of its glory before you start putting in those those scleral wounds or scleral sutures. Let's say um, you're, you're doing that, you find your wound, and then you see obvious vitreous sticking out of the wound. Mm. What do you do then? Well, you, uh, again, pray to the surgical gods. The first thing you do <laughs> is take a wex cell, and you can tap it very gently. And the wex cell, being an absorbent sponge, will stick very well to the vitreous. And then you can take a blunt Westcott and just gently cut the vitreous 
that's attached to the Wexel sponge. Now you don't want to go in there with the Wexel, touch it, and then pull all the way because you're going to pull yeah. all the vitreous out of the eye. But you want to stay relatively stationary and immobilize the vitreous so it's easy to cut. It's on tension to some degree. Use the blunt Westcott's to cut that vitreous until, and do that over and over until you feel like you've cleared the surgical plane of any vitreous that might be hanging around. Yeah, I mean, and, and Grayson makes a great point. Just speaking as a retina fellow, I always told the, res, uh, the residents, whenever you touch vitreous, remember you're also touching retina because it's so firmly attached to the vitreous base of the retina. So like every time you're doing that wax out, pulling up a little bit on a piece as gentle as possible because you're also pulling directly on retina is how I would think about it. So, okay, so now let's say that the laceration crossed the limbus. The scleral laceration crosses the limbus. What do you do? Anything different? If, if the laceration crosses the limbus, it's really important to first reapproximate the limbus and make sure it's a nice circle. Not only is that a nice landmark to make sure the eye is put back into its normal shape, but also you don't want them to have an abnormally shaped cornea with a ton of astigmatism afterwards if they have good vision. So first line up the limbus and use a 9 nylon suture at a good 90% depth and suture that down. Sometimes it can be tough if there's a lot of uvea extruding from the eye, so you're going to want someone to push that back maybe with an iris spatula. Um, if there's a ton, you can even use like a scapins retractor to push that back into the eye, but um, you want to put that limbus together first. And that's before any corneal or scleral repair. Okay, so let's also say that you're exploring and you know, you're not quite sure when you found a wound. Well, maybe another way I can ask that is how do you have any tips on trying to find scleral wounds, especially as you say, there's all the scar and blood and everything in the way. Mm -hmm. It can be really hard. And that's why it's so hard to clean things up as best you can. If you're doing your blunt dissection into the quadrants with a curved Steven scissors and you see a gush of blood, a gush of what could be aqueous or vitreous or a bunch of oozing from a site, then you can probably rest assured that that's the area where it ruptured. Additionally, when you're looking at the eye, even before you get to the OR, if you notice an area is a lot darker than the rest of the subconcheme, that could be uvea or clot, and so that might give you an indication. And then, you know, in rare instances, the CT can actually be used to try to identify where the scleral rupture is. Um, those things can all be kind of guiding you along the way. And then you might see big clots or tenons or other scar in an area, and that can also give you a clue. Like if it's hard to blunt dissect, the tenons tends to stick very adherently between the conjunctiva and the sclera. And in all the other quadrants, it may be really easy to get posteriorly, but in that one, it's really firmly adherent. That's usually a really good sign that that's where this, the uh, rupture is going to be. So let's say we, we take all the tenons off, we take the, the clot off, we get rid of all the vitreous. After you visualized the wound, you use 8 nylon suture to reapproximate the sclera. And you want to go from one side to the other with equal, you know, lengths on both sides of the sclera. And you don't necessarily want to be 100% depth, is my theory. I don't want the retina surgeon to go in there and do a vitrectomy and see all my sutures inside of the eye. I want it to be Your like beautiful 90%. Sutures, yeah. yeah, beautiful yeah. sutures. I want it to be 90% depth so it reapproximates, but it doesn't like tent up or tent down the scleral edges. So 90% depth is great if you can do it. If you really have a hard time, full thickness is okay. Because as long as you're putting the eye back together, you're giving it a chance to heal. Yeah. Um, one thing that is actually interesting is if you have really far posterior wounds, the method of fixing it can be different from if it's anterior. So let's say it's limbal, right? So you have a nice limbal wound. You can expose the whole thing, see the full extent of it. Let's say it's like five millimeters. 
In those scenarios, just like you're classically taught in med school, you want to do the first middle, 50% bite, and then take 50% on each side, and then 50%, 50%, and keep cutting it in half. But if it's really far posterior or radial, that thing might just keep going all the way back to the nerve, and you don't want to expose the whole thing because you can have uvea, retina, vitreous, mm-hmm. all coming out of that wound. If that happens, I recommend just doing a close-as-you-go mechanism where you close it first as anteriorly as you see it, and then dissect a little more, close it again, dissect a little more, close it again. If you try to expose the whole thing, you can have a supracortal hemorrhage or other things expulsed from the eye, and then it's going to be essentially impossible to reapproximate the sclera. Maybe I'll ask you now, but how far back do you go if it's like a pretty posterior laceration? That's a really interesting question. There's a lot of diverse opinions on this. There's some controversy. Some people want to close everything because they are, you know, going in there to fix it and they don't feel like it's fixed unless they suture every little bit of that wound. Unfortunately, the further back you go, the more you're having to twerk the eye and that means that you're putting pressure on the globe and it can cause things to expulse. That can mean you get retinal incarceration, uveal incarceration, and vitreous expulsing. And at some point, you might be doing more damage than good. And so if you're getting really far back there and it's hard to visualize, there might come a point where you just say, look, I'm going to let the rest of this thing heal by secondary intent, and that's okay. Because it will scar down. The tenons will close up around it. And by the time they go in for a vitrectomy, most of the time it will be sealed. And if you've prevented the retina from getting incarcerated, that means you don't have to do a little retinectomy. They may preserve their macula in entirety. They may be able to preserve more of their function. And so, you know, if it's really far posterior, at some point you just want to wash your hands and just say, we're done here. Let that thing scar down. Right, right. And, you know, again, just from the retina perspective, because often if they're going that far back, there's probably going to be some kind of retina problem. Our general rule, if we are presented a patient who has a posterior lac that we know was not sutured is we wait two weeks. And then if they need a vitrectomy or, or whatnot, then the vast majority of the time that's enough for it to scar down and like everything, you know, turns out relatively okay. So, so, you know, the, it, it does genuinely work and it can make a watertight wound even under infusion from a vitrectomy. Hmm. So after you fix the sclera, what do you do next? Yep. So once you're done with the sclera and you're pretty sure you fixed as much as you can or the whole thing, you want to close the conjunctiva. So we made relaxing incisions at 3 and 9 generally, and so we close that with 8-ovicral suture. I tend to use a 2-1-1 and then have a running suture backwards to close the whole thing. You can do an episcleral bite to keep it more secure if you want to. One important thing to know is that you really want the scleral wound to be covered by conjunctiva to allow it to scar down. You do not want that thing to have any exposure to the air to allow it to get into the mitis. So just make sure that you make it taut enough that the conj is really covering it. And then, away from the side of the wound, again, we'll do a subconjunctival uh, cafendec injection with antibiotic and steroid to try to promote healing and prevent infection. And again, once we're all done here, we might do the one week of antibiotic eye drops, prednisolone eye drops, atropine, and then the 48 hours of IV antibiotics to let them heal as best as possible. Gotcha. And just because I know this was confusing for me as a resident, so you really only need to approximate the conch at three and nine because in my head, I would have thought, oh, you have to suture like 360 around, like a running suture, almost like a PK or something to get the conch down. But in your experience, or I guess in everyone's experience, you only have to suture three and nine. Yep. Or do you ever do more than that? Nope, that's usually yep. enough. So, you know, there's a few other things that come up and residents ask about a lot, and I felt like it was just worth mentioning. And some of these are actually useful for the boards as well. Um, this first piece is about, you know, you're, you have a patient with a really screwed up eye. 
when do you offer them a nucleation or evisceration? You know, historically, there was all this talk about if you do an enucleation within two weeks, you prevent the risk of sympathetic ophthalmia. And so that's from like this old study, um, unclear if it's actually true or not. It doesn't seem to be holding true based on recent experiences with that, but hmm. sometimes people think about it and residents want to know. So I'd say with modern surgical techniques and the fact that even if they develop sympathetic ophthalmia, we can treat it really well nowadays. We tend to close 100% of these eyes if we can, even if they have no vision, even if they're not going to have any potential visual outcome, because there's something psychological about keeping your own eye and having your eye there, even if it's not working, that people benefit from. And that's what we found. Now, if the eye is painful, if it's super emacerated, if they have NLP vision, it is worth knowing that even I have had some patients with NLP vision regain some vision after the fact. And so just because they have NLP vision day one does not mean that they're going to have NLP vision forever. Now there's a high chance of that, but it's not 100%. And so you want to give them the best chance of vision outcome. And so we tend to close them and not take the eye unless we absolutely have to. So again, just to be more stringent about it, primary nucleation is really only offered to people that have basically unrecognizable ocular contents, an avulsion or transection of the optic nerve that we know about, an inability of the patient to undergo multiple surgeries. Let's say that they have high comorbidities and uh, poor lifespan or something, you might just want to take it primarily. And these occur more often with ruptures than with lacerations, because lacerations tend to be pretty well visualized and easy to, to fix. Now, the second thing I wanted to mention is sympathetic ophthalmia as an entity. These things kind of go hand in hand with trauma. People wonder about, you know, is there really a risk of sympathetic ophthalmia? Are people just hand wavy? Is it a real thing? <laughs> Most people have never really seen it. And to be fair, I've never had a patient of my own develop sympathetic ophthalmia. At Mass Ioneer, we do have a uveitis service where they follow some of the patients that did develop this. But we found that in modern studies, the risk of sympathetic ophthalmia after trauma is only about 0.3%. And that tends to be true across the board. And uh, as to remind everybody for their board review, sympathetic ophthalmia is a bilateral granulomatous panuveitis that occurs in both the non-injured eye and the injured eye as a consequence of exposure of the ocular antigens to the body's immune system because the eye is normally an immune-privileged space. And so the autoimmune T-cells tend to attack the non-injured eye and can cause vision problems in that eye. And it tends to come on sometime between two weeks and 10 years, but the majority of them happen within one year of the injury. And the patient may notice decreased vision, redness, and photophobia. And they'll, on exam, have anterior chamber cell and flare, as well as vitritis, keratic precipitates. They have subretinal fluid without a break and a Dalen-Fuchs nodule. Now, one interesting thing I found to ask for, according to our uveitis service, is that one of the first things patients will notice is a loss of accommodation ability in their non-injured yeah. eye. And that's because of the uveitis and the, the ciliary body spasm. They're not able to accommodate anymore. And that's one of the earliest signs that we ask for. Again, I've never seen it, but I'm told that that's one of the things you can ask for if you're worried about it. And uh, again, the old studies showed that if you took the eye out within two weeks, you decrease the risk of sympathetic ophthalmia, but there have been studies and case reports that show that it can happen before two weeks anyway, and that even after enucleation, they can develop sympathetic ophthalmia. So it's not like you're totally missing the boat. It's probably likely that at the time of injury, the body is exposed pretty rapidly to the antigens and they're going to develop sympathetic ophthalmia or not, and there's nothing you can do with enucleation to really prevent that from happening. It's treatable though, and thank God nowadays we have a lot of things to, to treat this with. In the literature, people most commonly use systemic steroids and then transition to immunomodulatory agents like methotrexate, cyclosporin, or azathioprine. But 
Uh, it's, also, it's pretty rare and they can have good vision outcomes. The majority of patients in one study did have vision of 20-25 or better, even with sympathetic ophthalmia. So you shouldn't give up hope. Right. Don't count that as a, if someone develops it, don't count it as the end of the world for their other eye. Yeah. Basically what we're saying. Yeah. Well, that's, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Grayson, for coming on and teaching us all these surgical pearls. I definitely, you know, a lot of these things I'd never heard or had never considered. So um, before we close this episode, I wanted to make everyone aware of this application that Grayson helped to develop called OE Acronyms that we both think is great, not only for, you know, ophthalmology trainees, but those, you know, outside of ophthalmology. Uh, so can you explain what this app does, Grayson? Yeah, so I got to work on this app called OE Acronyms or Ophthalmic Edge Acronyms. If you're on iPhone or Android, it's available for you for free and it doesn't make any money, so there's no real conflict here. But basically, it, in ophthalmology, we have a ton of acronyms that are really confusing. Like we talk about the Marina study, we talk about SO for sympathetic ophthalmia, we talk about all these things, but no one outside of ophthalmology knows anything about what we're talking about. And even in ophthalmology, if you're not in that subspecialty, you still might not know what note means. So this basically collates all of the acronyms that are available in ophthalmology, and you can search them by name or by the acronym themselves. And they're all just like ready at your fingertips. And so all I have to do is go and download OE acronyms or ophthalmic edge acronyms in any of the app stores and uh, get going. If you find an acronym that you want to submit uh, that is not on there already, you get credit for submitting it in the app and you're listed as a contributor. So that's just a cool way to contribute back to medical education and your colleagues as well. Yeah, that's awesome, Grayson. And I'm definitely going to tell all of our first year residents and interns who are about to come in to ophthalmology to use that. Because I, I think that that's one of the biggest barriers for people starting to learn ophthalmology is just translating our crazy notes and all the horrible acronyms that no one else uses. So I know. Yeah. It's a language all its own. It's the duolingo of ophthalmology. Uh, so if you like to be heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes for ears of the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then a rating review on iTunes is very helpful. I'd really like to thank Grayson again for using a, one of his, I'm sure a few free weekend mornings to come on and teach us all this about open globes, rupture globes, and all the rest. So thanks Grayson. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Of course. Bye.